Welcome to the Inez Franklin Teaching and Sermons Podcast. Inez is a teaching pastor, public speaker, and founder at trochia.org. Learn more about Inez at www.inezfranklin.com. We hope this teaching brings you guidance, connection, or tools as we seek God together today. Enjoy the teaching. wonder if how many of us here right now can identify at least one thing, if not more, that you are currently waiting for. Is there something you are waiting for? Anybody? Oh, good. Because chances are, like me, that waiting for you is rather difficult. I mean, it's hard to wait for the things that we, we wish for, we dream for. And so this message today is going to be about that whole process of waiting. You see, as I've been thinking about the subject, I figured out that there's really only two types of waiting. There is passive waiting, which is the kind of waiting that um, it's kind of destructive. We, we know what we want. We know what we desire. We know what maybe we deserve, whatever it is that we're after, but it's not coming. And while we wait, we lose hope. And maybe we get frustrated and we get discouraged and maybe bitterness starts to grow into our heart. And this kind of passive waiting loses complete hope, so much so that when that thing comes, if it does, we can't even enjoy it the way we were wanting to because it really changes our heart. That's passive waiting. The other way we can wait, and that's what we're going to learn today in the scriptures, is active waiting. And active waiting I define as when you are thinking of the thing you're going to have, but during the time that you wait, you make use of that time. It's an encouraging kind of waiting. It's a hopeful kind of waiting. It's an anticipative kind of waiting. And that kind of waiting brings hope not just to ourselves, but to others. So if you have a difficulty with learning and you want to learn how to actively wait and have hope while you wait instead of frustration and discouragement, let me know. Are you in? Okay. So we have been on this journey of reading the Gospel of Luke. Four different writers write about Jesus And so this gospel, just like the others, is all about Jesus. And so Luke, why we chose Luke is because Luke is an outsider. The other three writers are Jewish. Luke is a Gentile, a non-Jew. And he writes to a Gentile, Theophilus. And so he's writing it from that perspective. And if you were here last week, you learned that Luke began his gospel with a very, probably you heard this, very formal Greek And he sort of sets the tone for what he's about to do in his gospel. That he's going to show that God had made promises to this people, the Israel, and that he kept them. They were fulfilled. He's going to show with great detail and accuracy that there were eyewitnesses to these events. And he's going to do this so that Theophilus, for whom he's writing, and us today, can hold fast to the things we believe. We can be certain about what we believe because these things really occurred. Most of the gospel is about Jesus. But today, we're going to read a passage that actually isn't about Jesus. Because Luke chooses to start this account. First by introducing what he's going to do, but then he tells us a story to prepare. Prepare our hearts, prepare our minds. And so we have a little bit of waiting to do before we get to Jesus next week. Now, If you have been going through church a lot, if you are a reader of the Bible, there's always a risk of this happening. And that is we read the Bible, we come to church, we hear a sermon, and we are waiting for the part of the sermon that's about us. 
how does this apply to me? What difference does it make? You know, really, that's all wonderful, but it doesn't make a change in my life. We want to know that it's about us. And the scriptures are about us. They say a lot about us, and they say a lot about how we are to live our lives. But that is not all that the scripture does. Scripture is there to tell us something even more important. It's there to tell us about God. Who is God? What is his character about? And sometimes we have to do a bit of studying to get that understanding. And that might be maybe the part of the sermon you don't like. We're going through scripture quite a detailed and you're thinking, oh, when is it going to get to me? Well, I want you to know today, yes, we're going to get to application, but today's message is not all about you. Okay? We're going to talk about God. We're going to focus on him so that by understanding him better, we will understand ourselves better. And we will grow in this area of waiting. Now, open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. And if you did not bring a Bible or don't have a phone that you can look it up, our ushers are going to come up with blue Bibles. We have some extra Bibles here. Just raise your hand, wave it. I see a few people. And they will bring you a Bible that you could use for today. And there they come. Keep your hands up so that they know that you need one. I'll give you some time to get to Luke 1 and give you a little bit of background as you wait and as you, like, exercise your arm. Okay. So, again, we talked about how Luke is writing about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but he gives us this story that we're going to focus on today, which is intended to prepare us. So, let me give you an example of this kind of preparation. This week, do we have any more Bibles left? We're out. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, um, you can kind of sit next to someone who does and look over their shoulder. We're, we're cool with that. This week, I was having lunch at a cafeteria area where it had uh, TVs going, you know, showing the news. And the sound was off, so I could not tell, you know, what they were saying. But nowadays, when you watch the news, there's so much writing going on, you kind of have a sense for what's going. And this is the scene that I saw as I was enjoying my salad. I don't know if this, I think this was outside in some building. And there were a whole, oh, there's some more Bibles. Raise your hand if you need one. One more. Okay. Lucky guy. Um, So there's this scene where you have a whole bunch of microphones pointed in a certain direction. Uh, A Marine soldier who's standing like he ate something that froze him, because literally he was standing still the whole time. And a young lady with her little clipboard looking very efficient, making sure everything's right, moving ladders, moving, moving microphones. And that's it. This was the scene. I'm eating, and this scene did not change on the screen of the TV. And I'm thinking... Okay, oh, that's right. This is Obama is about to do a conference. And needless to say, we have had a rough weeks, right, for a few weeks. And I thought, okay, there's going to be some announcement being made, and this is good news. And so I'm waiting for Obama to come, and it's not happening. This scene remains fixed on the TV while all kinds of words are passing around. I'm sure that the announcers are saying something, but I couldn't hear it. And here's the thing. As I watch that TV and ate my lunch, I was preparing my mind and my heart for what was about to happen. And if you're in media, you know one thing, and that is if you have cameras fixed on something, you could put that on pause and keep watching it. It's not like they need to keep it for us to see and you know, because they might miss Obama. They won't. They can keep filming that, in the meantime, showing us commercials or anything else they want to show us. And then the minute Obama would show up, they can easily just, whoop, with a button, there's Obama. But they didn't do that. They chose to keep the TV frozen on that scene while they talked. 
And I think they did that because they wanted us to be prepared. By the time Obama came into the scene, I was prepared to hear what he had to say. I was focused, and I was hoping it was going to be good news. And so this story that we're going to read today, it's that kind of a thing. It's a story that's preparing our hearts and our minds for the person that is to come into the scene who is as good as Obama can be. Let's face it, Jesus is even greater. And so it's so important that we read this story and understand it. Okay? And so one of the things that we're going to notice about the story, especially if you are not Jewish, is that this story has a lot of Jewish Connotations. It's connected to the Old Testament in many, many ways. And all of us, most of us, know this story. We hear it a lot in Christmas. And so we can tend to read it and miss what this story is all about and how it's making so many connections to the Jewish story, to the Jewish history, and to the Old Testament. So we're going to go through it a bit slow, okay? Remember, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about God. We're going to get to us after the application. We're going to go through it slowly and see what is this story trying to teach us about God. This is active waiting. We're going to be looking for these clues. So let us begin. We're going to start in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Okay, let me pause there for a moment. Herod, king of Judea. In the time. This is a historical account. A real king who existed in a time. And this Herod, the king of Judea, was known as uh, Herod the Great. He was a great temple builder. He was building the temple in Jerusalem at that time. Why Luke gives us that detail is he wants us to understand this really happened. This is not some fairy tale parable story, some sort of created mystery. This is a fact of history. This occurred. Okay. There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So we need some new characters Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah from the line descendant from priests, and Elizabeth as well. Now, at that time, a priest, it was good for him to marry a pure Israelite, someone who didn't have a family mixed with other races. But it was even more preferred if they married a woman that was from a priestly family. And so this is a very special couple with great credentials. But that's not all. Look what it says. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Wow. So we have a priestly couple, a, a very religious couple, a very devoted couple who knew the law who, and observed it. And so quickly we think, well, of course, if something wonderful is going to happen, it's going to happen to someone who's that good. And we think that's how God does things. But no, wait. There's more to the story. It says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. In the first century, not being able to have a child was very differently viewed than it is today. Now, I know if you have experience or know someone who's trying to have a child and they can't, you know that pain, and you know that sorrow and that frustration. So that's very real. And that existed in the first century as well. However, in the first century, there was a bigger problem. You see, the people of Israel, follow, and especially this couple, they follow all the commands. And the command said what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. 
In other words, AKA, have lots of children. And so when a couple did not have children, it was seen as a shameful act for the family. It meant that maybe this family was receiving a divine judgment because they had obviously done something wrong to deserve not being able to have children. So all of a sudden, this wonderful religious couple who follows the commands and is blameless, in the the eyes of the other fellow Jewish believers, were not so perfect and were looked at down upon. And they had a great deal to every day to address this sense of shame. They were dealing with this passive waiting of hopelessness because they were not able to have children. And it tells us that they were both not old, very old, which means there's no hope. It's too late. Done deal. So they're never going to get rid of this shame despite their loyalty to their God and their um, righteousness. And so the story goes on in verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, at that time in Israel, there were 18,000 priests. They were divided in 24 divisions. Now, if you're good at math, and I'm not, you can see that each division had quite a few priests. And what they did is they would rotate this responsibility of burning the incense in the temple. And so a division may be able to perhaps do this work maybe twice a year. That would be the rotation. And in each group of, in the division, there were a lot of priests, and so they had to choose who was able to go into the temple and offer the incense. And to give you a little picture of the temple, the temple had a room called the holy place where the altar of the incense was placed, where they would burn the incense. That was right next to the most holy place of the temple, the holy of holies, where God's throne would be found. God's presence, and it was divided by a curtain. So this was a very high honor to be the priest chosen to come up that close to God's presence and burn incense. So look what happens to Lot, to Zechariah. He is chosen by Lot. Now Lot, um, it's kind of dice. They don't really know what these look like. We don't have any of them today, but Basically, it said yes or no. So they would roll these things, and it would tell them, okay, is it going to be you know, the priest John? No. Is it going to be the priest Peter? No. Is it going to be the priest Zechariah? Yes. And I'm thinking Zechariah wants that. Yes! Oh, sorry. Okay, because listen, he was very old. He had been a priest for a long, long time. He had seen this rotation over and over and over, and he wasn't chosen. He heard a lot of no's. He heard no to having a child. He heard no to being able to serve God in this most honorable way. But today, today is a good day for Zechariah. He's chosen to go into this space and offer the incense. Now, when you burn the incense, this is supposed to represent the prayers of the people. And so they would burn the incense, and the smoke would come out of the temple, and the people outside could smell it and see that God was hearing their prayers. And here we find out, that is happening actually in the afternoon. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And that, a lot of commentators say that that would have been somewhere around 3 p.m. when people would come to the temple and be there when the smoke would come out and be praying and worshiping while 
the thing was taking place inside the temple. And so this is going to be very important that this is happening in the afternoon where there's a lot of people present. And you'll see that in a little bit. So Zachariah has a good day. He gets to go and burn the incense. And the way it would work, he would put the incense, set it on fire, cause it to create the smoke, drop to the ground, literally lay on flat on the ground, pray, pray to all the prayers, get up, burn some more incense. And he kept doing this until it was time to leave. Okay, so when the smoke stopped, usually the priest would come out. But something different happens. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, Zechariah is having a really good day. He got chosen, and this day, an angel of the Lord showed up. Now, there's something interesting about angels. When they show up, they're not sort of like with little fuzzy wings or anything, looking beautiful. There's something really startling about them, and they always say, right, do not be afraid. And so, that's how the angel starts. And Zechariah hears him say, your prayer has been heard. Now, quickly, I'm thinking Zechariah is saying, which prayer? I mean, I've been seeing a lot of prayers here. There's a whole bunch of people outside who gave me prayers. And by the way, I've been waiting for a son. So God, is it that you are going to save, come, and bring salvation to the people, to your people? Or are you saying my prayer is answered for a son? And here's the answer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. Now, it would have been good enough for Isaiah to hear, I mean, Zechariah to hear, I'm going to have a child, right? Girl, boy, whatever. I have a child. I have multiplied. But no, this isn't that like that. It's a son. And he doesn't even get to name him Zechariah Jr. A name is already chosen for him, John. Yohanan, which means Yahweh is graceful. And so we see here this beautiful thing for Zechariah. It was so important for them to have a son as a firstborn. So already good stuff is happening for Zechariah. But isn't in there? It gets even better. Listen to what it says on 14. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. If you have children, you know they're not always a joy. I mean, there's some times. Right? But this is pretty good. He's going to have a child. It's going to be a son, and he's going to be a joy, not just to mom and dad, but to others. That is really good news. It doesn't end there. He says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now, already... You probably can't tell, but I know Zechariah was hearing words from the Old Testament ringing in his ears. Because when he says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born, Zechariah may have remembered Jeremiah, who was in the womb and already was professed as a prophet by God. And so there's, this is becoming very important. This is not just a son, not a son that's going to be a joy, but something very important. And then the angel spells it out. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, now this is a big deal. 
A good Jewish priest would have studied the scriptures regularly, maybe memorized a great deal of it. And this would have reminded Zechariah of scripture that was prophesying one to come such as this. And this one was going to be his son. So here's some of the words if he would have, that would have immediately come to mind. Words from Isaiah chapter 40. Look what it says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert and highway for our Lord. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then look at this next passage. This is from Malachi. And we would have known this as well. Another prophet. I will send my messenger who will do what? Prepare the way from before me. And then Malachi chapter 4. See, I will send the prophet Elijah. Isn't that familiar? To you before that great dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Is that familiar? And the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, a little side note on that last sentence there. Notice that God has plan A and plan B isn't so good. So I'm thinking by now Zechariah is going, Whew, I'm so glad, God, you went with plan A. And it's going to be my son. Now, this is a big deal. Let's recap for a moment. Let's remember where we were at. 18,000 priests, 24 divisions, each with a whole bunch of priests. A man who's very old today gets chosen to go in. Good enough. Angel, an angel shows up and tells him that his prayer for a child is answered. And it's not just some child, it's a son. It is not just a son, a son that will bring joy. It's not just a son that's going to bring joy. It is a son that has been prophesied by God. It is a promise of God that's being fulfilled on that day. Now, if you were Zachariah, what would be your response to such a day? Now, I am thinking there's going to be a couple of different ways to respond to this. But most people would probably be a bit shocked by it and not sure about it. And I'm thinking, if it were me, I'd have some doubts. And thank goodness we see that we're not alone in this because Zechariah also has doubt. Look what it says in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. How can I be sure of this? How can I be certain? You see, Aaron, I'm sorry, Abraham, when God said to him, you see that land? That's going to be the land of my people, the people Israel, your descendants, Abraham. And the same thing comes to his mind. How will I know this is going to be mine? How can I be sure? Give me some certainty. We see Gideon, who's about to go into a battle, and he's not really sure. God's telling him, go, Gideon. You're going to be victorious. And he starts asking God for proof and puts out, kind of ridiculous little thing to make sure that God gives him some sign. This is indeed going to happen. So it's, you know, Zechariah is not alone in this. It's kind of difficult to look at a divine revelation and believe it right off the bat. So here's what happens. Then the angel angel said to him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, Gabriel, anytime he shows up, history changes. He announces a big change in history. So his presence should have been enough for Zechariah. That's proof. But frankly, if he walked out with that proof, nobody would believe him. Yeah, yeah, okay, you're getting kind of old and senile. I understand it happens, right? So, and I get it, why Zechariah was asking for proof. But now the angel gave him proof. You won't be able to speak. And we must understand what happens here. You see, when a priest was done with burning the incense, he was supposed to come outside and offer a blessing upon the people. You've heard it in number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you and shine his face upon you. He was supposed to come out and say that, the whole prayer to his people. Well, he wasn't going to get to do it now, not able to speak. A lot of commentators said he couldn't even hear, perhaps. So imagine Zachariah going outside and trying to explain to these people, he just saw an angel, he's giving him a son, and it's going to be this amazing person they've been waiting for. And, and it's kind of a little bit funny what it says. Listen to what it says. Why myself here? Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stays so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Like, so you can imagine, right? Zechariah can't speak, can't hear. He's talking about some angel and the baby and trying to make, and it's like he looks crazy. And so there is no way he's going to be able to prove to anybody that this happened to him. And so the angel takes that away from him. But one day he will be able to speak, and we'll learn that next week. And then the story ends with this. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And that's a very easy thing to kind of roll over, but it's an important part of the story. First of all, imagine this, a very old man who's been wanting to have a child for a long time and hasn't happened, probably has given up completely, comes home, can't speak, can't hear, someone has to write to his wife, honey, you know what I'm saying? And she's probably going, where are you making this up? For not for the fact that he can't speak. It seems to me like she believed them, and they are indeed pregnant and having a child. But then there's this confusing passage. It says, Elizabeth was in seclusion for five months. And I kind of got stuck on that. I couldn't figure out. I mean, you get this great news. She can speak. She can tell everybody about what just happened. But she doesn't. She remains in seclusion. But then I thought of this. I am a mother. I have three children. And if, if you're a mom or you know someone who's been pregnant, you know that they can tell you, hey, I'm pregnant, but maybe no signs show. Their body looks identical. And as time goes, their bodies does, do change. But there is sort of like that point where you meet a, a lady who's pregnant, and you think they're pregnant, but you're afraid to ask, you know, because maybe, maybe they just put on a few pounds. And so I can imagine Elizabeth kind of stayed home because if she... You know, first of all, she went out and told people that she was pregnant and this happened. They would have laughed at her and made her feel even worse than she felt before. But then when she did get a little bigger, if she went out, they would have said, Whoa, Elizabeth, lay off the bread a little. Right? 
but she waited five months. Now, what happens at five months in pregnancy? Baby starts to move. The baby starts to move enough that someone could put their hand on your stomach and feel it and know that it's not gas or something. You know? And so she waited until it was obvious she was pregnant, that her body had changed enough so they could see a child was indeed to come. And now she can share in her joy. In these days, he has shown favor and taken away my disgrace. And so, okay, we got through the, what do we learn about God through this passage? And let's get to the application part. What does this mean to us? What does this story tell us about how we are to wait, how we are to actively wait? You see, the, this is a, a lifestyle, really, of changing the way we look at, at our lives. There is no story like this can just, can just be made up, because truly, in the Bible... If you look at some of those stories in the Bible, they kind of don't make sense in that they couldn't be possibly made up. There's embarrassing moments, and that's how you know that Scripture is accurate. Because if you were going to write up a story yourself about you know, something that happened and you wanted to make sure you look good in it, you would not put stuff that were embarrassing to yourself. And some of these parts of this story, the way that Luke tells it, is to tell us, hey, this really did occur. So as we think about the application of this story for us, let us be reminded that this event did occur in history. And so it should inform us about the way we should wait. We should not limit God because he's the most creative being and he does things in unexpected ways, constantly surprising us. We should take God for his word because he makes promises and he keeps them. And that God's timing is perfect. Zechariah was an old man. I mean, it would have made sense that he gave up. And yet, this promise was fulfilled. And so we must remember that God does it in his own timing, not our timing. Look what it says in 2 Peter. But do not, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live a holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear brothers, since you are looking forward to this, what make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Sometimes waiting is exactly what we need to do because it brings so much for us. Have you ever found a situation where you were frustrated because you had to wait, and then when it did come, you found that that timing was actually better than if you had it before? Sometimes waiting is important. And here we tell, Scripture tells us, This kind of waiting is extremely important. And Christians, I think, are the worst at waiting. And I think we are the worst at waiting because, let's face it, we have the most amazing God, and he has made promises, and he keeps them. And he's made a promise that one day he will make all things right, that all that is wrong with this world will one day will be made well, and that 
our bodies, which are perishing, will be made new, and that all the evil in the world will be destroyed. We have this huge promise. And the Israelites were waiting for hundreds of years when this event took place. Listen, we've been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to come back and make things right. So, yes, yeah, no wonder we get a bit frustrated in waiting. And some situations make it even harder for us to wait. I mean, we want evil to end. We want anger and gossip to end. We want terrorist acts to end and acts of violence to end. But we want, most of all, we want suffering to end. Over the last week, two few weeks, I've been working at Chalk Hospital. And I've met families who are dealing with children with terrible diseases. And my job as a chaplain to go in and just hear, be present, pray, whatever they feel that they need. And you know the number one question or statement they make? It's kind of a question and a statement at the same time. Why? Why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening now? What is God doing? Where is God in this? And that's a reasonable question. There is such, such a difficult thing to watch your child who maybe was born healthy and now has a heart condition and is about to go into a surgery that has a 20% chance of them not making it. And so when I, I'm faced with these families and they're asking these questions, I am reminded how desperately we want Jesus to come back and make things right today. What does it say? He waits so that none will perish, so that there will be salvation to brought to many. There are people out there still who don't know Jesus, who aren't saved by his grace and his love. There are people out there who stubbornly are saying no to God, and maybe God's waiting for them. In the meantime, we ought to be patient And patience is very difficult. I'll tell you a story. My husband and I have been to Peru quite a few times uh, delivering wheelchairs. We met this family, a mother, single mother with two daughters. They had Down syndrome. Uh, One was 16, one was 14. And mom tells us the story of her daughter being raped by the father. And she became pregnant. Now, our team, who was in this house, they're in complete shock at this point. They're seeing this mom, this very, very simple living place where she's living, and all of us are asking this question. How is that possible? How would a man do such a thing to a child in this condition? How is it possible that then she gets pregnant and mom is now worried that the child's going to have Down syndrome? And she's already burdened taking care of two. She'll have to take care of yet another child with Down syndrome. And the questions we were asking were the same questions that these families were asking in the hospital. Why? Why? This is so wrong. And we get impatient and we think somehow that if we just sort of yell more at God, it's going to happen tomorrow. God's timing is perfect. And our active waiting, the best we can do for these families, for these people who suffer, the best we can do for our friends, our family members, Our loved ones who are in pain, even just the world who is in pain, is to be present. Not offer some crazy answer, but be present. Maybe join them in prayer. Maybe share with them our hope. John came to point people to Jesus, to prepare a people's heart for Jesus. That's our role, too. That's our responsibility, It's our job to step into the suffering and the loss of someone else and bring hope to them 
in the midst of suffering. Because one day that suffering will end. But until then, we wait with great anticipation. And we bring hope not just to ourselves, but we bring hope to others. And see, we don't do this by ourselves. We do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah. We have the spirit of the Holy Lord. And look what it says in Second. P- and, um, I'm sorry. Look what it says in Isaiah, chapter 40. Why do you complain? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths will grow tired and weary, and young men will stumble and fail. But those who hope in the Lord, hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That, my friends, is active waiting. When we have the Holy Spirit in us, and we bring that kind of strength, not our strength, and there's no way I have what it takes to help these families, but the strength of the Holy Spirit to minister to others. And I hope that if you're waiting right now, if you're hurting right now, what you understand about God today is that he makes promises and he keeps them. And as we respond, our worship team is coming back, and we're going to take a moment. If you're new to the chapel, we have various stations where you can spend a moment and reflect on what God is telling you today with this message. We can, you can choose any of these or all of them. You can come to the table of communion, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and be reminded there, there's God's promise completely being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there's a promise through this effort that Jesus will come back. He will set things right. Evil has no hope. That's where you can come and remind yourself of that. Perhaps you need to come to the cross and confess your doubts and confess your questions and confess your sins. He came and died so that you didn't have to carry that load. He's here to take that load for you so that you may be set free to live in the light that he brings. Perhaps you need to light a candle and just bring hope into life. Maybe you're hurting right now. Maybe you're the one who needs that presence, and you need hope, and you need to be reminded of this hope. Come to the candle. We have offering boxes boxes in the back because he gives us everything that we have, and by us giving some back to him, we are reminded that he is indeed faithful. He promises to take care of us and to provide, and he does. Our prayer team will be up front. If you want prayer, someone to come alongside of you, just be present with you and pray with you. Feel free to come up and have them pray with you. And so as you come onto the stations, go to any of those that you want. But think for a moment as Zechariah, how are you going to respond to this amazing message from God? Thank you again for listening. Make sure to learn more about Inez Franklin at www.inezfranklin.com. You can help share these teachings by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sending this episode to a friend. Make sure to follow Inez Franklin on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and more, where she is engaging with the community and inviting us to participate with God and His work together. Thanks again. Thanks again.